can be seated. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Today we're going to complete chapter 5 as we head into our August reset. And this is really good. I didn't plan it this way. It's, it's nice that it works out this way because Romans chapter 5, the end of Romans chapter 5 marks a break, the end of a section of Romans. And Romans chapter 6 starts with a new theme. And so we're, it's, very, it's a very nice place to break. We will not be picking this study back up at all during the month of August. We will resume it in the month of September. And so we're going to have five Sundays off from this. And so it's nice to be able to conclude at what is a, a break in the letter. So we're going to finish August. Uh, we're going to finish Romans chapter 5 ahead of our August reset. We, we covered the, the final passage of Romans chapter 5 is from verses 12 to 21 and we covered the most theologically important verses in that section last week we spent a lot of time on the first three or four verses there uh, nailing down that verse 12 verse 13 and verse 14 nailing down the theological significance of this passage and so the main point here is the comparison between adam and jesus and we we talked a lot about that last week and we're going to continue in that this week. But this week, Paul starts the lesson by pointing out that there are significant differences. We, we spent a lot of time last week talking about the similarities. We, call, we went so far as called Jesus Christ the second man, Adam. But we're going to start with the fact that there are differences between Jesus and Adam. Beginning in verse 15, it says, But not as the offense so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, or therefore as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men under justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Whoever, moreover, the law entered, that the offenses might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through, our, through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. That's kind of a difficult passage to read in the, the gilded King James language, and we'll kind of break it down. And before this service is over this morning, and I, I believe you'll fully understand everything that was said there uh, in the midst of all of the, the, the breaks and all the stuff that, that happened as it that unfolded seem kind of awkward to the modern English tongue, but it's going to make plain sense when we get done with it. Amen? Beginning with verse 15, I'm going to read it again, and verse 15 is difficult. 
in the King James English, but it says, But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For through the offense of one, many be dead, much more the grace of God. And the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. So Paul starts with the word but, and I, I kind of set that up in, in, the, in, in the moments before I read the text. That marks a change in the thrust of this passage. Last week we drew the positive correlations between Adam and Christ. We went so far as to call Jesus Christ the second Adam. But now Paul's going to make the point that in spite of that comparison, and we're going to come back to that comparison before today's over, but in spite of that comparison, there are some major differences that need to be understood. Namely, the gift of God is not like Adam's offense. That's what that first difficult portion of, of verse 15 means, but not as the offense, so also is the free gift. The gift that God gives us is not like the offense of Adam. The gift is not like the offense. By Adam's offense, many died. That's the legacy of Adam. But the legacy of Jesus Christ is a legacy of grace, and it is much greater than the legacy of Adam. Much more, Paul says, signifying that our blessings in Jesus Christ are greater in scope than our losses in Adam. It's not an equal comparison when you compare what you lost in Adam and what you gained in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has more than restored what we lost in Adam. The gift of grace is not like the wages of Adam's offense. Adam by his one sin, brought death to all of humanity. But Jesus Christ, in his death, brought life to all of mankind. And that would seem at a glance to be equal. It would seem to be that the exchange of death for life is, is an equal exchange. But it's not really equal at all. Jesus came not just that we might have life, but that we might have life more abundantly. What he gives us is far and away greater than what we lost in Adam. That's the point here. What we have recovered in Jesus is much more than what we have lost in Adam. And Paul ends the verse with this statement that this gift of God abounds or overflows to everyone. Then verse 16 says, And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. So again, the, the gift's not like the one that sinned. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. So we continue the contrast. I know the English, the language behind me is a little hard, but let me explain it. Adam's one sin brought judgment. That judgment resulted in condemnation. But the free gift of salvation isn't like Adam's offense. It isn't like Adam's one sin. The free gift of salvation, Adam's one offense brought death. But the free gift of salvation covers many sins, not just one sin. It doesn't just cover what Adam did. It covers a multitude of sins, and it results in justification. So, the emphasis here is on the infinite superiority of the work of Jesus Christ. His saving act is much more effective 
than Adam's sin, since it not only nullifies the universal result of Adam's one sin, but it is also able to cancel the consequences of all of our personal sins. We said last week, you know, you're not ever going to be judged for Adam's sin. You're going to be judged for your own sins. And if the work of Jesus Christ was only the opposite of Adam's sin, then it would only wash away the guilt of Adam's sin. But that's not what it does. The, the work of Jesus Christ is so much more than Adam's offense because it not only washes away the sin and the curse that come from Adam, but it washes away our sins. We sinned on our own. We're guilty of our own offenses. We've got our own list of wrongs that we have committed against God, transgresses against His law, those, those things that we have rebelled against God. And the work of Jesus Christ covers not just the one sin of Adam, but it covers the multitude of our own sins. When we respond in faith and obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ, his blood doesn't just remit that, that inherited guilt that we got from Adam. It remits our guilt for our sins. That's our only hope of salvation. The, the key to verses 15 and 16 is that the saving work of Jesus Christ was for all of humanity. But that does not, by virtue of the act alone, mean that is set the whole human race free from the effects of their personal sins. If all of humanity was saved at the cross, then that would be the end of the story. And no further action would be needed on your part to be saved. That would be what we call the doctrine of universalism, and everyone would be saved no matter what they do. It wouldn't matter whether a preacher preached the gospel to you. That's not what Paul is saying. The blood of Jesus Christ is enough to cover the sins of all of humanity, but its application to your personal sin is conditional and therefore limited. You have to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ in faith to have your sins remitted by the blood of Jesus Christ. The point of these two verses is not universalism, and we'll talk more about universalism later this morning, but the point is that the ability of the cross to counteract your personal sins, it extends as far as your obedience, your faithful obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But, if you faithfully obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, his blood not only remits the sin of Adam, the guilt that you carry as a human in the descendant of Adam, but it remits your personal sin too. And that way, it is much greater. There's no comparison. Adam's sin doesn't compare to Jesus Christ's righteous act on the cross. His is far and away greater. So the sacrificial act of Jesus fully reversed and nullified the effects of the sin of Adam. And, and it did that and much more. 
and that much more part matters because we're guilty of much more than just being the descendants of Adam. We're guilty of our own personal offenses against God. And our very hope of salvation lies in the fact, not that God can undo what Adam did, but that in undoing what Adam did, he can make a way to forgive me for what I did. That's what matters. It's not just that the cross can undo the offense that happened in the the Garden of Eden that Adam and Eve committed. That's not what it's all about. It's about can that what happened at the cross forgive me? Because if you wipe away the death that I have to the sin that Adam committed, if you totally remove that from the picture, I'm still guilty. I'm still a sinner. I have still rebelled against God. I have still transgressed the law of God. The hope of my salvation lies in the fact that the gift of God is much more than the curse of Adam. That's where my hope, the hope, my hope is. That the gift of God covers the multitude of my sins as well as washing away the guilt of Adam. So Paul says... The judgment was because of one offense. This is the point he's making. The judgment was by one. It came by one offense. Adam did one thing, and that one thing brought the judgment of God. The judgment was to that one offense, but the free gift covers many offenses. It doesn't just cover that one offense. It covers all of our sins. It covers all of the wrong that we have done. That's the power of that much more. And that's the point that Paul's making from verse 15 to verse 16. Now verse 17 says, For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more, again referring this, this much more, this greater thing that God has done, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. So the point of this verse is very similar to the point of the last two verses, verses 15 and 16. Adam's one trespass brought death to the whole world, but through Christ we shall reign in life. The key thing about this verse is the use of the Greek present participle, an active verb, for the word receive it literally means that we are receiving the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness it indicates that those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness are continually in the act of receiving it it indicates a continual personal conscious decision that is ongoing to receive the gift of grace. What that means is that although Jesus Christ died for the whole world and the benefits of his act are available to everyone, only those who are presently receiving, only those who are presently accepting into their lives, receiving his gift of righteousness will actually inherit eternal life. Now that's a very important point for two reasons. First of all, 
it addresses the notion that once you're saved, you're always saved. It doesn't matter what you do. It does matter because those that much more they which receive, that's, that's an active present tense. We're receiving the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. I qualify under that only if I'm in the act of receiving it. Right here, right now. Not something I received past tense. Not something that happened somewhere back down the, the history of my life, but it's something that I'm doing right now. I am receiving that abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. So the indication here is that your salvation is a result of an ongoing, personal, conscious, active decision to follow Christ. Not a decision you made somewhere in your past. Secondly, it excludes the doctrine of universalism. And I'm going to deal more thoroughly with the doctrine of universalism for just a moment right here. The doctrine of universalism is the doctrine that everybody will be saved regardless of what you do because Jesus died on the cross. His death was enough to save everybody no matter what you do. That has most recently been promoted in a book by Rob Bell called Love Wins. The idea that the love of God is so great that he's going to save you no matter how you live your life, no matter what you do, no matter whether you ever respond to the gospel or not, God is going to save you kind of negates the whole need to have a church kind of negates the whole need to have somebody preach to you the gospel of jesus christ universalists use these passages these verses we're talking about this morning in the book of romans to establish their belief they believe that everyone is saved in jesus christ just like everyone was lost in adam and that no further action is needed but by taking that belief from these verses, they miss the entire point of the passage. These verses teach that every person can receive justification by faith. Nobody is excluded. But it doesn't teach that every person will receive justification by faith. Christ has made salvation available to everybody but not everybody will accept God's grace. To accept God's grace, it takes obedient faith. You've got to obey and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've got to apply that to your life. That's what it takes. Not everybody is going to do that. No, no, not everybody is going to continue in that ongoing life of faith. Not everybody's going to live in that present tense active receiving of the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. Not everybody's going to do that. So while the call of God is universal, God has called everybody. And while the grace of God is able to save everybody, there's nobody that God's grace can't reach. The scripture still tells us that although many are called, only those who respond to that call are going to be chosen. It takes some action on your part. The cross is sufficient. The point here is to establish the sufficiency of the cross. The cross is sufficient. 
It will save all of humanity. You haven't committed a sin that the blood of Jesus can't cover in your life. That's the point. The point is that Jesus Christ has done the hard part. He has died for your sins. He has declared that which is unjust to become just. He's made a way that the unrighteous can become righteous. He's made a way that the sinner can be touched by the grace of God. But the burden now rests on you and on me. We have to accept the grace of God. We have to lay hold of the promise of God. We have to faithfully obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is the means by which we are saved. Not just the death of Christ alone. There's the caveat. That's what puts the end to universalism. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross alone isn't what saves me. What saves me is my faith in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. I've got to do something with it. I've got to act on it. That's what brings me to the place of salvation. Amen? So those men and women who continue in the grace of God, the Scripture says, will reign in life through the power of Jesus Christ. We started out as slaves to sin. We've talked a lot about that in these five chapters of Romans. We started out, we were in bondage to sin. But Paul tells us that the grace of God transforms us from slaves to rulers. That verb reign is future tense. It it refers mainly to eternity, where we will reign with Jesus Christ for all of eternity. There is a present tense reality there as well, though, because by the power of God, we're no longer slaves to sin. We were once subject to sin. We were once the slave of sin. Sin once controlled us, but now we can reign over sin in our lives, not by our power, not by our willpower, not by our ability, but through the power of the Holy Ghost. That's the present tense reality. The future tense reality is that one of these days we're going to reign with him for all of eternity. Amen? Verse 18 says, Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. Now, I meant to point it out before we change. Flip back to verse 17 real quick. We talked last week about how the main thought of this passage is broken up by a parenthetical argument, and that ended at the end of verse 17. The parentheses ended. We've moved back now in verse 18. We're moving back to the main point of this passage. Paul started in verse 12 to state that main point and then kind of took off on this little parenthetical side note and we've been there ever since and so now we return back to that main point so verse 18 is really a restatement of the premise of verse 12 by Adam's trespass judgment came to all men but by Jesus Christ one righteous act the free gift of salvation comes to all men Adam brought condemnation unto death, but Jesus brings justification unto life. 
in this verse, one offense by Adam is compared to one righteous deed by Jesus Christ. And really, that's the comparison we've been making for several verses now. One offense by Adam, one act by Jesus Christ. That brings a question. What then is the one act? What is the one righteous deed? How are we saved? We're saved by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is important. Paul refers to that as one deed, one act, one thing. The, the death, burial, and Jesus Christ are viewed by Paul as a unified, inseparable whole. It's one thing. We're saved by that one act, by his death, burial, and resurrection. The whole process is viewed as one. You can't break it apart. We weren't saved just by his death. We weren't even saved by his death and burial because Paul said if he didn't come out of the grave, our faith was in vain. We were saved by his death, burial, and resurrection. It takes the whole thing. You can't break it into pieces. That one act, the death, burial, and resurrection, viewed as a one whole thing, is how we were redeemed. Now, the reason that's important is because the counterpart to that one act is the new birth. We're born again. How are we born again? We're born by repentance baptism in Jesus' name, and the infilling of the Holy Ghost. Death, burial, and resurrection. And they are taken together as one unified whole. Jesus told Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. Well, how can a man be born again? Are you going to go back into his mother's womb and be born a second time? And Jesus said, no, but except you're born of water and a spirit, viewing one birth, water and spirit, then you'll never see the kingdom of God. You can't divide the new birth into parts. You can't break it up. The new birth is repentance, water baptism in Jesus' name, and the infilling of the Holy Ghost. They're viewed as a whole. They're viewed as a single unit in the same way that Paul views the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as one act. That's important because it's not enough just to repent. It's not enough just to get baptized. It's not enough. You have to have the whole process. It takes the whole thing, just like Paul said, unless he rose from the dead, then the whole thing was ineffective. You've got to fulfill the whole thing. You're not born again until you're born again. I could break the human birth process into stages. There, sister, is Julie in here? She's gone. Her water's going to break sometime next week, hopefully. Amen. She's at that point. And, and, and that's going to be the first step. But there's a whole lot that goes on in between that step and actually holding in your arms a newborn baby. It, it's a process. But you can't take and break all that down and say, well, this is, this is what it means to be born. It takes the whole thing to be born. Just like it took the whole thing for God to redeem us and just like it takes the whole thing for you to be born again into the kingdom of God. Amen? Now, the benefit of that one act is greater than the negative work of just taking away sin and punishment. That one act also consists in the positive work of imputing righteousness and granting life. We become righteous. We're given life through the blood of Jesus Christ. 
verse 19 says, For as by one man's disobedience, we're still in this one-to-one comparison, for as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. So through Adam's disobedience, the many, which is all of mankind, were made into sinners. Through Christ's obedience, the many or all of mankind who believe and obey the gospel of Jesus Christ will be counted as righteous. He made a way that the many, that all, can be saved. Christ's obedience was specifically that death, burial, and resurrection, that death on the cross. That, that death was the culmination of a whole lifetime of obedience. Jesus Christ was the spotless Lamb of God. He lived a sinless life in my place. I can't live a sinless life, but he did it for me. And he died on the cross. When he died on the cross, he wasn't paying for his sin because he didn't have any sin to pay for. When he died on the cross, he was paying for my sin. And he was buried and he rose again on the third day that I could have life and that more abundantly. Amen? So he died in my place. He was my substitute, and his death purchased my life. Now, the pivotal word here in this verse is that, that word made. For by one man's disobedience were many made sinners. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. By Adam's sin, we were all made sinners. We were declared to be sinners. Listen, this is, this is important. In Adam's sin, we were made. We were declared to be sinners. And the reality of that was acted out in our lives. Because we were made to be sinners, we sinned. Does that make sense? We were declared to be sinners in Adam. And we lived in sin. It showed up in what we done. It showed up in our actions. It showed up in the words we said, the things we did. Our lives were characterized by sin because in Adam we were made sinners. But now Paul points out that by the virtue of the cross, we're made righteous. Now that's important. Justification means that we're declared to be in right standing with God. We are declared to be righteous. And the reality of that is acted out in our lives. Just like when we were made sinners, we sinned. When we're made righteous, we live righteous. Does that make sense? When we're made to be sinners, we lived a life of sin. It showed up in everything we did. It showed up in the words we said. Our very nature was sinful. But now we're made righteous in Jesus Christ. And because of that, we strive to live a life of righteousness. It matters how you live. Amen? The fact that this is future tense, by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous, would seem to underscore the fact that this is an ongoing process. We were made to be sinners. And that was continually acted out in our lives until we came to the cross. And then we were made to be righteous. And that, too, is continually acted out 
in our lives. Now, justification has been the subject of Romans up to this point. We're about to change directions. When we pick Romans back up in September, we're not, we're not going to be talking about justification anymore. We're going to be talking about sanctification. Justification is the act of being declared righteous. And sanctification is the act of actually living like it. That's what sanctification means. Justification means that God said to the, to the sinner, you're righteous. Sanctification means that once you were made righteous, you lived righteous. Just like when you were made a sinner, you lived in sin. And so we're going to be talking the next three chapters, 6, 7, and 8, are going to deal with sanctification. They're going to deal with righteous living. They're going to deal with being godly in the way we live. And so Paul is setting up that discussion here at the end of chapter 5. Verse 20 says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. This verse has to be taken with verse 12. Remember I said we picked back up that original thought. And you've got to take the two together because they both explain, together they explain where the law of Moses fits in the picture. We started with universal guilt. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And we talked about how that guilt existed before the law of Moses. That was all last week. And now we're talking about how the grace of God works, and Paul ties it all the way back, and then he explains where the law of Moses fits in the picture. So give me verse 12 up here real quick. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world. Sin entered. Now give me verse 20. Moreover, the law entered. Okay, so both verses have the English word entered in them. But they use two different Greek words. In verse 12, the word that's used means came into. It is saying that sin entered the world or sin came into the world. But verse 20 says that Greek word means came alongside. It's literally saying that the law entered or the law came alongside of sin. Sin entered in verse 12. Then we took this little digression, and now we're back to the main point. Sin entered by Adam, and then law entered. But law didn't enter in the same way sin entered. Law came alongside of sin. Sin came first. Then the law of Moses joined sin. What Paul is making, the point he's making, is that law had a temporary purpose. The law had, the, the purpose was to cause recognition of sin. It, wanted, it, it was God's way of causing us to see sin. It identifies sin. It causes that recognition of sin to increase in our lives. The purpose of the law was to reveal sin clearly. Now, we talked about the fact that man was guilty of sin before law. Why? Because God wrote his law in our heart. We had a conscience. And we were guilty of transgressing our conscience before we ever had a law to transgress. But the law makes the transgression stark. It, it makes it something that we can all see. It, the purpose of the law 
is to reveal sin and convict us of it. God gave the law so that sin becomes a legal offense. You broke the law. You, you see the law and you broke the law. Now, sin was already there. Sin had already been committed. It was against the law of conscience. But without the law, without the law of Moses, without the written law, man was not fully aware of his sin. Well, we said man knew he sinned because he had a law of conscience. He knew that he transgressed his conscience. And without a doubt, his conscience convicted him. Let's get real. It's easy to become calloused to your conscience. It's easy to become calloused to that inner voice that speaks within and says, this isn't right. And over time, man convinces himself that evil is good, that wrong is right, and that he's not transgressing his conscience at all. That's where the law comes in. Paul tells us that the law comes in alongside of sin to define sin. But whenever the law defines sin, it didn't stop it. As a matter of fact, it increased it. When the law came into the picture, sin increased. You would think that if you were doing wrong, you didn't know you were doing wrong. Then I'm going to lay out, now this is how you're doing wrong. Then maybe it will curtail some of the wrongdoing. But that's not at all what happened. The law increased sin. It increased the offenses. It, It made it more prevalent because of man's nature. Because of that sin nature that was born into man. The law actually stimulated more sin. The man rebelled against the law of God. And so, the more that sin was defined, the more man sinned against the law of God. Even though God gave the law for a good and necessary purpose to define sin, it had the effect of increasing sin. The purpose here was to project sin into the consciousness of man. The law makes man aware of sin. When man is confronted with the law, he can no longer deny that he's a sinner. He has to recognize the fact that he has transgressed the law of God. That's important because, as I've already said, we have a way of fooling ourselves. We have a way of fooling ourselves into believing that we are right even when we are wrong. Solomon said, The way of a man seemeth right to the man. It doesn't matter whether it's right or not. If I'm doing it, it seems right to me. It doesn't matter whether I've transgressed or not. I can make up a justification for anything. If I want to do it bad enough, I can make up a way that it's right. I can conceive of a way in my mind that this is okay. And I can have a whole list of becauses and whys and rationales as to why it's okay. That don't make it okay. The law cuts through all that. The law establishes the fact that I'm transgressing the the, the very will of God, the very purpose of God, the very law of God, whether I recognize it or not. I can argue with the law until I'm blue in the face. It doesn't change the law. See, I can convince myself, but I can't change the law. And so the law comes in to create an awareness. Man, 
may have believed he was innocent, even though he was guilty. But his belief didn't change the fact that he was guilty. And so God brings the law in to make man aware of sin, to make man realize. And this is the point. The point isn't just that law increased the occurrence of sin. The point is that law makes man realize that he needs grace. And, and when you read the, read the writings about the law all the way through the, all the writings of Paul, this is always the point. This is always the conclusion. The law was a school mark that brought us to the understanding. We need the grace of God. And the law points out to us that we've fallen short of the glory and the majesty of God. The law makes us aware of the fact that we need God's grace. So by increasing our sense of consciousness of sin, the law increases our sense of the need for God's grace in our lives. And in that sense then, when sin increased, when law increased, grace also increased so that where sin did much abound where sin abounded grace did much more abound the law entered so that I become aware of sin and even though sin increased grace also increased grace is greater than sin amen and so as sin increases grace overflows Sin will never outpace grace. And the more that sin condemns, the more grace forgives. The more sinful the age or the environment, the more God gives grace to overcome the sin. The point can be made here that no one can use the sinfulness of their environment as an excuse not to live for God. Because the more sinful the environment the greater the grace of God. Grace is greater than sin. Verse 21, and I'm coming to a close. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. One last comparison summarizes the contrast between Adam and Christ. As sin reigned in death, even so, grace can reign in righteousness to bring eternal life. As we once lived in sin, resulting in death, if we accept God's grace and live in his righteousness, we receive eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The tyrant sin in our life is overcome by the grace of God. The life of sin is replaced by a life of righteousness which results in eternal life in Jesus Christ. And that points us towards the next section of the letter. How do we live a life of righteousness? And that ends chapter 5, and it brings the second main section of the book of Romans to a close. In the first section, Paul showed us how that law cannot succeed as a way to heaven. You can't get to heaven by the law, since that could only happen if you could live perfectly by the law. Nobody can do that. The second section, Paul showed us how that God provided a way of salvation known as grace 
and that was done through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. That sacrifice is the basis by which we're going to get to heaven. Not the law, but the sacrifice of Jesus. That sacrifice makes it possible that a sinner who believes and obeys the gospel of Jesus Christ can be justified, can be declared righteous before God, and can make it to heaven. So the first section pointed out that the law can't save you. The second section pointed out what can save you. And what can save you is the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And when we're declared righteous before God, we're set free from the tyranny of sin to live a life of righteousness. We're made righteous. And that sets up the transition to chapter 6. And when we resume, when we pick things back up again in September, we're going to look at godly living because that's where Paul goes next. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? I know I've been a little lengthy. I've covered more territory than I normally cover on a Sunday morning. Usually we cover three or four verses, and we, we finish this chapter out this morning, kind of move kind of fast through it. But if there's one prevailing point here, it is that grace is greater than all sin. That's the point. Grace is greater. All the sin that you've ever committed in your life, is subject to the grace of God. Grace is greater than sin. And I want you to know in this place this morning that God's grace is still real, still moving in this house. God is still able to touch in every heart and every life. I know we live in a world that is messed up. We live in in an environment that is inherently sinful. But there's no excuse not to serve God because His grace is greater than the sin.